Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Booze, Booms and Busts, the podcast where we discuss market events while quaffing a few beers. My name is Boaz Shoshan and I'm joined as ever by Sam Volkering. Sam, how are you getting on this week? It's been quite a uh, quite a wild ride, huh? G'day Boaz. Uh, yeah, good to be with you again this week. It has been a bit of a wild ride. Um, I mean, shit, we had Tim Price on the podcast last week. That was that was a wild ride in, its, in itself. <laughs> Um, and when we were just discussing off air that it's it it almost perfectly coincided with a mass sell-off in the crypto markets and commodity markets. Um, now people can take that as a sign if they like or not, but I think it's fair to say that Tim Price was the cause of all of these things. I mean, I, I, that's a logical conclusion for me. Yeah, I, I mean, we we do need to uh, we should discuss that in all seriousness. What what do you think it was that caused this grand sell off? Because uh, looking at things like Bitcoin or Doge or whatever yeah. in uh, in the crypto space, uh, the media is uh, really quite determined to paint Elon Musk as the main cause of it. Yeah, uh, I'm thoroughly unconvinced. Uh, to me, I think uh, what a lot of people seem to be forgetting about is that last week. Uh, the U.S. Labor Department published the highest increase in inflation month on month mm. uh, since uh, the financial crisis, well, since 2008, really. Um, and that, you know, our really high inflation print, it really is bad for risk or risk assets in general, uh, certainly to begin with. And I think that is actually what caused the sell-off in Bitcoin. So it runs completely contrary to what uh, Bitcoiners uh, say is so great about Bitcoin. And I think maybe in the future, Bitcoin will uh, absorb people, you know, people wanting to uh, hedge against inflation. But for the moment, to my eyes, Bitcoin uh, just trades like a tech stock on massive steroids. And tech stocks really don't like inflation. You'll see that uh, the likes of the NASDAQ have not been having a, a very good time this week. Plenty of tech stocks have not been having a good time. And as uh, as tech stocks don't like inflation, Bitcoin doesn't trade like it likes inflation either. I think that may change in the future. Mm. But I think it's that inflation print that actually did take the edge off Bitcoin. Uh, Sam, do you agree with that or do you take a different view? Because uh, there are all manner of other things that you could point to that cause a sell-off. Yeah. I did see um, there was a chap on Twitter, actually, who, who uh, using some of the data from Glassnode, was making mm -hmm. the argument that uh, all of the leverage washouts we've seen this year, where people uh, who are, you know, must be, must, must be, you know, operating on a different mental level from mine. I mean, I just <laughs> cannot relate to somebody who would want to take 150 times leverage to the Bitcoin price. <laughs> I think, it, you know, to call that iron constitution or a death wish, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you must be really feeling like you've got nothing to lose or, you know, feeling like you are, uh, you know, the son of Hercules or something, because I, I, I just can't relate to how someone would be able to take that risk. But somebody did make a very good case that effectively all the times during this year we've seen leverage get washed out where yeah too many people going too long on uh, bitcoin futures uh, on the exchanges so this is where it's not cash settled they are actually using bitcoin as the uh, you know the bitcoin itself is being involved in the transaction to get, get you that kind of leverage from the exchange mm. uh, all of the times we've seen leverage get washed out mm. like that and we have seen that several times this year which have led to you know uh, up to 30 percent or even more than 30 percent uh, drawdowns in the bitcoin price when that happens that never happened uh, in its total entirety. So whenever that had happened previously, the people who were long, some of them did take, uh, did close their long positions, but they, uh, a lot of them just added to them at the bottom. So they sort of doubled down on it. 
Yeah. And he illustrated through uh, a series of glass node charts that effectively this time around, a load of uh, Bitcoin whales had, re- had sort of seen this. They'd gone into the exchanges, deposited loads of Bitcoin into the exchanges and sold it at spot to try and really just destroy these people who were, who were uh, using a lot of leverage in order to wash them out and get the price down and then buy it all, buy it all back up again. And they seem to have uh, succeeded in doing that. So you see the loads of uh, Bitcoin going to the exchanges before this big sell-off. Mm. Then you see loads of Bitcoin leaving the exchanges after this off uh, which would uh, it is a, it is just a theory but I, th- I find it quite compelling but sam i've uh, waffled on too long what's your what's your take on it what do you think's going on no no i think i think that's i think you're pretty well spot on i think i said i, th- I think i saw someone that was like um after the event as something like seven hundred thousand bitcoin left exchanges in like an incredibly short space of time um look when these sorts of things happen i have no doubt that 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 people just want to grasp at, at, at some sort of easy reason, right? And the media are complicit in this as well, that the first thing they go to is Musk because Tesla said this, he tweeted that, and it coincides with you know a, a reduction in price. Okay, yeah, maybe a little bit, but not, not a 30, 40% crash uh, in the space of effectively a few hours that that no no single person has ever had that kind of significant impact on the crypto market it might be a a small spark that starts a larger fire because then there was you know there was some stuff about china and their ban on financial institutions using cryptocurrency which um yeah there was done that loads of times in the past exactly right so i i remember an article in december 2013 where they did the same thing, they banned it. They they banned Bitcoin um, people from transacting in it, but they've never banned people from holding it, and they certainly don't ban their miners from mining it. Um, no. So again, again, you just you and people are like, oh, it was the China thing, oh, it was the Elon Musk thing. Even on fucking CNBC or MSNBN, fucking whatever those news channels <laughs> are these days, um, there was what some douchebag was wearing the old rat poison Bitcoin T-shirt. Now I don't know whether he was taking the piss out of. Uh, Buffett or whether he was like I told you so but the media just have no fucking idea really and I absolutely believe that it was it was really uh, an opportune time for leverage to get wiped out of the market because that kind of hard fall and let's not forget the the bounce off that bottom. Because so the other thing, right, was is that the fall almost perfectly. I think it might have even perfectly to the dot hit thirty thousand. Um, and in a lot of cases, that is going to wipe out most people with leverage. Like I can't imagine that um, that many traders would have had stops below thirty grand, considering where we were. Um, and, and, and I don't even think you could probably even afford to pay for those sorts of that sort of um, spread on it. So the interesting thing with it is that, yes, leverage got wiped out. And I, and I think that just accelerated it even more is that it's, it's, it's the domino effect right out of that. And there's, there's quite a good chance that significant players in the space uh, were able to, yeah, like you say, move onto, onto exchanges, sell rapidly at the spot, trigger just a mass exodus of leverage from the market, and then buy back times over uh off the off the bottom yeah. um and so the other thing with that is is that what we see this time and i think this is maybe going to be a hallmark of these kinds of crashes going forward so the other thing is when you look at it in in price terms it's fucking terrifying going from you know what was around 
50 grand to like 30 grand. That's a crazy fall. Percentage turns 30, 40% maybe to the bottom, but Bitcoin bounces like 15% off where it was a couple of days ago. Uh, so not that terrifying, not that unusual as well. And as we continue to climb in, in, in this the, in fiat converted price, these kinds of falls are only going to make people shit themselves more. Because it's one thing to go from a grand to a hundred bucks and people are like, meh, grand to a hundred bucks. They go from like, what maybe, you know, let's say we go from a hundred thousand uh, to, to, to 10,000. That's a very different mm -hmm. psychological move uh, that people probably aren't going to be prepared for. And so I think that's going to only accelerate. And the other thing that's interesting about the market right now is that there's so many different ways uh, and, and, and derivatives, sort of crypto derivatives of this market that never existed before, that didn't exist in 2017. Like there are, there are crypto that you can trade that are just short other crypto. So mm. it's a crypto to short other crypto. It's, it's like crypto inception where you can just you can literally buy a crypto that that will just short and and is is basically if if um uh xrp goes down your crypto value goes up um and yeah, so a like lot a of the, leveraged etf yeah, but as a token yeah yeah and and these are available on like ftx and and on uh, binance and so like you say these leveraged so binance generates a fucking mental amount from all these leveraged trades like you say you know 150x i mean what kind of psychos doing 150x on anything, let yeah, alone crypto for fuck's sake? Maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe it's somebody who's, you know, rich fella, you know, he's. I don't uh, see, I don't think, I think it's the. No, I no, 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 no. Wait, wait, let gambler. me, let me. It's, it's from, it's from uh, dopamine overexposure, right? You know, <laughs> like nothing satisfies you anymore. Yeah, mm. you know, social media, drugs substance abuse this there's this guy he just you know, nothing does nothing. it for him anymore there is nothing which makes him feel something anymore like spikes in the ball sack nothing does it anymore no, just can't do it for him you know it's not like he's uh, you know self-harm nothing he just can't feel anything anymore and the only thing that'll do it is 150 times leveraged or not even on bitcoin maybe on some random <laughs> some random binance smart chain altcoin with like a ten thousand dollar market cap you know that that's what he's got to do it's just gambling at the highest level maybe that's who it is but whoever it is i mean there's a lot of people because uh, i think there was some 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 results published by i think it's, it's not bybit it's bybt i think uh, they published um yeah. uh, by their analysis 775,000 people got liquidated traders yeah, got I, liquidated. I i saw figures of like 8 billion dollars in the space of of a couple of yeah. hours yeah yeah uh, liquidated yeah. Yeah, the same. Yeah, it's the same stat from that from BYBT. That's yeah, uh, yeah. Seven hundred seventy-five thousand guys or girls, eight billion dollars getting liquidated, getting lost on that. Which is, uh, well, that's eight billion. It's eight billion, and oh, uh, eight billion by seven hundred seventy-five thousand people. Still a lot of money each, and uh, <laughs> they just got absolutely wrecked yesterday. I wonder. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I wonder, you, yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna trade this market and you're gonna use leverage, which is fine if that's your thing. But Jesus Christ, like make it 10% of your portfolio. Like don't people, I, I have no doubt that there are people. So I think what we saw was that from the, the sort of earlier wipe, um, like a week and a half or two weeks ago, that people probably would have ramped up the leverage thinking that it couldn't go that much lower. And it, it's basically, it's, it's buying the That's dip to trade. a point, right? 
it's it's catching a falling knife even though you know well you, at least you think you know at some point that that knife is going to bounce off the kitchen floor and just find its way magically back into the holster uh it's it i i would i would think that when you when you start to get the psychology of a lot of the crypto bros out there i i it's just leverage on leverage even to leverage back the position that they lost and it's sad because it it's it's i think a lot of it is are those that have come out the back of uh the gamestop wall street bets saga and that found crypto is an even more degenerate uh friendly market for just run the run the ball around the roulette table at the casino um yeah. which which it is when you start like you said like you start talking about you know um poo coins on uh binance smart chain that trade for you know got a market cap of 13 14 grand um that you know will 10x with no liquidity to trade them you've got to you know increase slippage to like 15 percent um people don't understand how these markets work they don't understand how to connect to them they don't understand how to trade them i mean we had a little whatsapp chat with uh our, our buddy kit winder the other day and i said you know just for, for shits and giggles i thought i'd buy some fuck elon coin um just because i know what i'm doing so i knew that if it was going to wipe out uh, then i wasn't going to you know be too sad about my hundred bucks going away um, but even to do that, you know, you've got to know how to operate MetaMask, connect to Binance Smart Chain, find yourself to the contract address to then get to Pancake Swap to actually buy fuck Elon Coin, then realize you've got to increase slippage to ten percent. By the time you actually spend it, it's really only about eighty bucks worth of fuck fuck Elon. And then to get out of it, you're probably going to spend another ten percent on slippage. So you're actually probably only going to get back maybe half of what you got in a bad day. In a good day, you might get ten x in the space of a few hours which is fucking crazy, but people do this and don't know what they're doing and spend like twice as much on gas fees than they do actually buying the token. And if this all sounds complicated and people are like, what the fuck is Sam talking about right now? That's because it is, because it is complicated and it's stupid. <laughs> and it, it is, there are pockets of this market that have just become absolute um, shit fights uh, for, for fuck all. And it is it is reaching the clean out this is a clean out for yeah. sure well i wonder if it is i wonder if it is um yeah right and this this is this comes to a next question right so if it, imagine if it was imagine if this was just a few guys um who were bitcoin adopters from you know early 2010s they've hoovered up a huge amount of supply their whales have been sitting on it etc etc and uh they just decided well, there's too much leverage here. Let's just bankrupt all these idiots who are uh, who are doing this on exchange. We'll bring all our Bitcoin over. We'll keep we'll keep dumping the price on on the exchanges until we wipe these guys out, and then we'll buy all of this uh, cheap BTC back again uh, for uh, you know uh, at, at a great at a great discount. So imagine if that's what did happen, and we don't know what it what exactly did happen, but you know, let's say hypothetically that was what happened. I wonder, seeming as this market is just so psychologically driven, there, there is no, um, well, it's not no, but there is very little um, sort of rational, fundamental analysis. Not that you would, yeah, and not not to dis Bitcoin I know at what all, you're at. but just in terms of so much of this is driven by emotion, sentiment, uh, yeah. animal spirits, etc. I wonder, do you think it, it's possible that the the guys that did this, seven hundred wiping out seven hundred seventy five thousand traders, if that if that stat is to believe, like almost a million people getting wrecked over the course of twenty four hours, do you think uh, that they may actually have uh, just hamstrung the bull market 
So imagine if just a few guys that did this, they succeeded with their raid. But imagine if uh, they just did enough psychological damage to all these people that that bull market can't, isn't resuscitated for a long time. Imagine, so say for example, all the all of the sort of macro uh, arguments for things like Bitcoin still exist, yeah. but uh, due to this event, this Titanic going down, everyone's like, oh no, 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 it's all over. I'm not going near that again for a long time. Do you think that might be what happened? Um, could be, but so this is, I mean, this isn't the biggest, you know, sort of fall we've seen. In crypto markets and in in both the cycles the 2013 cycle and the 2017 cycle there was about halfway through those so if you if you view the whole calendar year as the up cycle uh for both those periods there was a period about mid-year about this time where there was a good 30 odd percent white off of off of the whole market off of bitcoin and everything else associated with it um i saw an incredibly great comparison a uh, couple of comparison charts between those two years, 2013, 2017, and what's just happened after yeah, it happened. Yeah. And they they are tracking almost perfectly the same. Um, again, we, we talked about this the other, the other day, I think, about the plan B stock to flow and stock to flow X models, how that hasn't really shifted out of that range that's indicated on those yet. And that really, I mean, we're in May, so there's a fairly big chunk of this year to come uh that it's it's quite possible that this will just mean maybe there's those that the next period of the next couple of months things stay pretty stagnant i wouldn't be surprised at that um but i don't think it i don't think it stops this cycle from from going up to higher highs again um i think i still think we'll, we'll go past bitcoin at 60 grand uh, i think we'll see bitcoin into six figures in this cycle before it tops out once we start heading into the sort of six figure range then i, I think we if, if this if this sort of thing was to happen so if we were to see a 50 40 50 percent um crunch off from like 100 150 grand then maybe yeah okay we might we might have found the top of the cycle um but there's still quite quite a divergence in terms of bitcoin's market dominance uh ethereum there's a lot of development coming for ethereum i mean the interesting thing about ethereum is that in in times where the market crashes like it did this week um ethereum is 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 unusable you you like i, I saw gas prices up around almost 500 guay which which roughly translated to um i think i did the calculations on it for like a thousand dollar transfer was going to cost you like two hundred dollars Concept. yeah nice nice uh, that's not exactly the future of finance but it is you know, for the ethereum miners yeah if, if if you're well so it's just like so there's there are issues still here um but yeah, uh, you don't say no the, the 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 thing is is that the development doesn't stop the the building out of these networks doesn't stop um and it goes beyond just fiat prices and again we've, we've we bang on about this in, in many of our previous um uh podcasts that when you blow out the bigger picture um, and, and look, actually, you know, I was writing about this today. Um, I think it was in 2013 when I was doing coverage of um, some fintech stocks and was writing about Bitcoin and digital currencies and talking about then the idea of Bitcoin becoming a, a global reserve, uh, the potential to become a global reserve currency online. 
2014, you know, got laughed at on TV, people saying it was a scam, it was going to end as a scam. You know, you can, you can track back and you just go through all the years and the, the, these peaks and troughs and these price, these price moves are just like, they're so vicious and they get, they're, they're so distracting from the core um, point, which is that the, 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 these new, new kinds of networks, decentralized networks that are trying to reimagine how we can connect and transact with each other online. Um, you know, when I, when I, I sent you some BTC for some beers a few months ago, right. Um, you know, that's, 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 that's a new kind of commerce. It's, it's stuff that we're trying out and testing out that we don't really know where we're going to end up with it. But, um, you know, just cause it crashes in, in, in the price of dirty us dollars. Uh, I don't think that means the end of it. If anything, it just means that, you know, it shakes out those with the paper hands, man. <laughs> you know, one thing I struggle with slightly, I'm definitely open to it. And, uh, you, know, I've, I've, you know, I've done it in the past. I mean, if you're just looking at the previous Bitcoin cycles and the behavior uh, throughout said cycles, you can make comparisons with uh, where we are today with these previous ones. But I wonder with the likes of 2013, I mean, Bitcoin was just so much smaller back then. I wonder if we can really compare the dynamics of that market with the market as it is now, which is a testament to how much it's grown. But just in terms of uh, when you see the size of the sell-offs, I mean, 2013, a significant like a 30% sell-off. In terms of what that was doing to the amount of money that was being drained from the market, how much liquidity was being removed from the market, you know, just the law. I mean, just uh, looking... Um, just looking at the optics of uh, the market cap falling yeah. in 2013. I mean, this was a much, much, much smaller asset class. And I wonder if we can compare them. Now, it does seem that, you know, you can draw comparisons. Uh, I've drawn comparisons, indeed. Um, but I do wonder if it's really that reliable when it's so small. Yeah. I think you make a good point, actually. I think to, to compare to, to like, maybe to compare to 2010, 11 then 2013 2014 probably well it is and it isn't i think so 2013 right and 2014 was the first was the real first explosion of, of, yeah, of yeah. well yeah it was the first explosion of altcoins right before that it was just bitcoin and and kind of litecoin um and prime but, coin yeah well like so 2013 2014 was like name coin peer coin fucking I mean, these are back in the days when uh, so uh, XRP that was Ripple was um, fuck what was it Open Coin or something, uh, and 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 when um, uh, oh fuck what what is you know Black Coin and Dark Coin yeah they I remember ended, this you know and they ended up becoming something else and so, oh, I can't even remember I think Black Coin did just died I think that project was yeah uh, Dark Dark Coin became was it. Oh, I can't even remember now. Anyway, <laughs> the point being is so that was that was the, the the genesis for a lot of stuff that then ended up becoming like the focus of the 2017 cycle. And then the 2017 cycle, that's a better comparison because then we are talking about serious sort of money then. And even leverage was available to that. And then the explosion of so the, the 2017 cycle was kind of like the explosion of the idea crypto where if you have a good idea, if you had a good idea for you know a new kind of network or a new kind of way of, of of redoing something, then you kind of you know you kind of launched a massive token sale. Now, interesting out of that is that 
yeah okay there was a lot of stuff that you made you could have made a short-term bundle of a lot of stuff that was shit that ended up being shit had great promise and potential but they ended up being shit um speculative markets 101 but a lot of that stuff then became the foundation of what this current cycle and altcoin boom has become so a lot of the DeFi stuff was really kind of seeded in 2017 and 2018 and is really? now becoming the focus of this cycle and i expect that this cycle that the shit all the different fucking swaps and dot finance fucking crypto that are out there pig finance ass finance come rockets finance whatever the fuck you want to call it is going to be the shit that falls off of here but there will be the seeds of the cycle that comes after this as well yeah, and so yeah, I just yeah. think, I think it's, you know, it's that building on building on good stuff, clearing out the shit, building on good stuff. And that there's going to be all this sort of discovery. And again, fiat price is going to just sort of be a role, whether we like it or not. Um, so it's just, it's just a part of what, I mean, like if, if none of this existed, I mean, what would we talk about? Something, something probably more <laughs> solid and tangible, I would imagine. You know, Sam, when we're saying uh, <laughs> if 2017 was the era of, uh, or, or saw the advent of somebody with a good idea making a bundle of it, I think the 2020-2021 cycle has to be somebody having a bad idea and ha making <laughs> yeah. a bundle of it, considering some of these Binance smart chains. The meme cycle. Seen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some of these aren't even, I mean, they're not even funny. I mean, it's just ridiculous, right? <laughs> some, of the, some of these tokens that have been minted. Like, so I, mean, I saw I, one, I saw one the other day and it's called, I, so I, I, I'm on Discord and I got uh, one of those spam emails on Discord and it was some douche fucking bot or whatever. And it was like, my pump group says Shiba art token is going to rise uh, 500% minimum seven days. Uh, Shiba art is Shiba, but NFTs, product ready, ready to go, ready to pump. And I was just like, I was like, you know, I'm going to have a look at Shiba art token. And it is literally a copy of Shiba token, which is yeah, literally yeah. a piss take on Doge, uh, Dogecoin. So it's, it's a shit take of a shit take of a shit take that uh, is trying to be pumped. And that I have no doubt people will try and buy that is surprisingly on Binance Smart Chain. Binance Smart Chain is literally the shit piping. It's it's the it's the uh, uh, it's the drainage. When I sit on the can and have a crap, it ends up on Binance Smart Chain. That's what Binance Smart Chain is right now. There's nothing smart about it. It's literally a, a chain for shite. Binance dumb chain. Mm. Dump you know, chain. I mean, I I think CZ. Binance dump chain. I mean, I, you got to give respect to CZ at Binance for what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he is, this guy is definitely a guy with vision. Uh, it's just that, Hey, if, if, if Ethereum's transaction fees were cheaper, this would all be on Ethereum. But Ethereum's fucking uh, unusable most of the time these days. So, yeah, I, I get what they're doing. And, and CZ and that. Look, Binance is a fucking good operation. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they're fast and free with how they operate, but... Pfft, they're, ultimately, I still think they're good for the wider ecosystem. They do fund a lot of projects. They do launch a lot of projects. Some that have real, you know, use case and potential. So they're not. I don't know, I'm harsh on Binance Smart Chain because it is a piece of shit. But um, Binance itself and CZ, I think, are, are good for the space. Yeah, yeah, they're very good with. Uh, 
they're very good with widening up the infrastructure. Yeah. And um, and when it comes to some of the stuff they've done with leverage tokens, I mean, you, whatever you say about leverage, it is still pretty innovative that they've managed yeah. to structure smart contracts within a token uh, yeah. so that you know effectively it can it can run without without needing much of an intermediary. But Sam, we have yet to mention which beers we are drinking this oh, week. Yeah. Uh, would you like to start us off? Yeah. So this this is actually one of the this is one of the nicest cans I think I've I've probably ever had. So this beer is called Flourish, um, and it is the O Brother Brewing Co. in Wicklow in Ireland. Uh, it is made up of the Eldorado Strata and Idaho Seven. Uh, now it's a double IPA, so it's a doozy. It's an eight point three percenter. Oh, wow. um, so uh, it is. It is certainly going to hit me in about fifteen minutes. I now, think it's already uh, hit me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe it has. Fucking hell. <laughs> so the can itself, it's um, it's art. So that's what probably makes it so nice. It's a black can, and it's um, the off the wall series. And the art is by someone called Omen. Uh, it's lovely. It's a black and white can. Um, yeah, it's, re- it's really cool, actually. I, I really like it. And in terms of the beer itself, uh, alcohol content aside, which is lovely, uh, it's really fucking nice, man. I, I, I really like this one. Flourish by o, o Brother Brewing Co. Um, mm. Yeah, very I've uh, I've already plowed through my first beer, so I'm already on the second one. Uh, this oh, tell one... us about your first. Yeah, I'll go for the first. This is uh, brewed by Boundary, which we have had several of in the past, and they also like to have some some nice artwork on their uh, on their cans, always like with oil oil uh, oil paint, I think, and just sort of brushed in fancy colors. But anyway, this one uh, was particularly attractive because of its name, which is just called "So Many Beer Names," which uh, I think is uh, very apropos for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, this was "So Many Beer Names" by Boundary. Uh, though sadly, with its rather forgettable name, uh, it didn't actually taste that great. I mean, it didn't taste bad, but it was quite forgettable, uh, kind of like the name. So, so many beer names I would rate, I think. I think it's just going to get an A, but it was okay. Um, and now I'm on to my second, which is uh, Money for Old Rope. Oh, and this is by yes. Bespoke Brewing Company, uh, which has a gentleman with a massive pallet of cash. I mean, maybe this I'm is glad a glad you said pallet was... of cash then. Oh, why? Well, you a gentleman with a massive. <laughs> yeah, mate, I'm pretty sure that first beer's hit you pretty hard. But oh, uh... what is? I I used to be able to drink several beers, and I'm basically becoming Tim Price on this episode. But this, uh, I think, this guy is the one who received um, that that um, that Obama's uh, Iran dollar payment. You know, so he's got. They're in a vault, and he's just sitting in front of this massive pallet of cash, and he's holding a big boatload of greenbacks in his hand. Yeah. This is, uh, yeah, money for old rope, 4.8%, and it is brewed by Bespoke Brewing Company. It's apparently won some awards, the Great Taste Awards, um, and it didn't <laughs> taste that great. I mean, I'm not really sure why they gave it these awards, but it does have an appealing label so uh, i'll stick with that for the moment you know I, I love these sorts of awards that they give out for for alcohol for beers for wines for spirits all those sorts of things it's like 
you could you could just make up your, you know you could have a little local competition and make up your own award get give yourself a gold star or yeah. you know basically you're basically like a you know when a 12 year old goes and competes against six year olds or something like that and just oh we won a gold star at the uh, taste of the northern england awards the taste of binance award the taste of the cz award for great tasting beer um, you, you mentioned something there that was that was interesting, um, and I actually probably wouldn't mind talking about it. I don't know whether or not it's uh, necessary or not relevant, but I know it's, it's probably up your alley. Um, actually, sorry, before I do jump onto that, I, I forgot to add that I'm giving my beer a, a double B minus. By the way, I oh, really like it. Wow, yeah, really good. Flourish, Oh Brother Brewing, uh, double IPA, very, very, very nice beer. Now, um, as I said, so obviously in the last couple of weeks, and we don't we don't really like to get political on this uh, podcast, and we won't, but there is a financial aspect to this as well. Uh, the the brouhaha uh, over in Israel and Palestine. Uh, <laughs> I see you roll your eyes, but I want to I want to get your thoughts on on the weird timing of these sorts of conflicts in regards to a changeover of uh, American politics and the war machine that is so uh, inextricably tied to the American economy uh, and how that's sort of, you know, working its way in with what's happening in terms of inflation, uh, stimulus money, uh, basically how that all comes together. I know you've got some views on this. Good. You know, I have some views on this. Do I have some views on this? I wonder. Um, I mean, what are you getting at when you're talking about uh, American political establishment? Well, look, my point is, is that it just seems suspect that all of a sudden, um, you know, uh, all this sort of shit starts to kick off when a new president comes in. There's issues economically off the back of a pandemic. We all know that the US economy is heavily rooted in their production and manufacture of military equipment uh, and uh, ammunitions, uh, basically the war machine. I just find it interesting that when this when, when this almost happens every time a presidency changes hands, that some sort of new war kicks off, typically around the Middle East somewhere. Uh, and except for, weirdly, except for Trump, although he may have ceded all of this to start with i mean does this does this mean that all of a sudden you know stocks like um uh you know uh, lockheed martin and be- become attractive again like should we should we be looking to the defense and, and aerospace industries for opportunities when you start to see stuff like this kick off i mean i know it's 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 kind of it's not ideal to be looking at conflict and the opportunities that come from linked industry but i mean that's what america's built on well i mean arguably the british economy uh is, the british. is yeah. very well, well to be honest with you it's actually look at western developed governments uh so we're looking at australia as well we're looking at sure. uh, france greece italy uh, and the us and yeah several others just when you look at developed nations you'll find that uh those that still have any form of manufacturing are uh you know what they're manufacturing is advanced weaponry and the reason that's why we're still manufacturing it yeah, the, the reason we can still do it cost effectively and haven't seized it anywhere is number one it's national security 
Um, and at the same time, you need very skilled labor to be assembling uh, things like guided missiles, uh, things like um, you know airspace defense, uh, you know air air defense systems, things like that. Um, I don't know. I mean, Sam. One thing, when I, I mean, I'm not really sure I can really address everything that you you bring up there. I think Biden is uh, is really quite soft on Iran, uh, and as a result, Iran uh, is going to increase its. As a result, you know, Iran had just has much more sort of room to move, as it were. So, uh, Trump administration was, of course, very hard on Iran. Uh, got away with killing one of their one of their top guys while he was in Iraq, and Iran was so. Um, uh, the response of Iran to the, the death of Soleimani was really very supine indeed, uh, where they effectively said, uh, we're going to launch a load of missiles at these US air bases, well, not air bases, but the US, US army bases. Uh, so you better, yeah, so please get out of them now so we don't kill any of you guys uh, because they, they really didn't want that kind of confrontation. So the US managed to get away with, with killing Soleimani and there really wasn't much of a, there really wasn't much of a backlash at all. Biden, however, does take a, a much softer take, and as a result, Iran can flex its muscles a lot more. Uh, when you're looking at Israel and Gaza, of course, this is, uh, while this is somewhat removed from Iran, uh, Hamas and Iran are not really far removed at all. And, uh, you know, that what, what is going on between Israel and Gaza, I mean, this is not something I, I would really comment on. Uh, I'm, it's not something I, I research very deeply. Uh, I know a fair bit about sort of some of the surrounding, uh, some of the surrounding uh, data, some of the surrounding history. Uh, but just in terms of what was going on there, um, I mean, I must say the Iron Dome system, which uh, which Israel has developed, is really quite uh, quite extraordinary. The level of technological advancement in Israel is is quite something. It's similar to uh, well, not similar, but there's maybe a similar story we see with South Korea, where if you are so close to uh, aggressive neighbors, uh, you are you're very close to adversarial neighbors, it does uh, wonders for stimulating uh, military advancement. Well, so you've... Do, do, but do they get to that point on their own, I guess? Or do they is there is there a helping hand from those that are kind of just willing to turn a blind eye? How do you mean? Well, you get the feeling that it's quite possible that the the Americans like there's there's numerous reports that the Americans sold a whole bunch of military uh, equipment to Israel in the oh, no no I mean there's not a, it's not numerous evidence I mean it's very <laughs> the, the Americans built an entirely special F-35 everyone thinks there's three F-35s there's four they built a special one for the Israelis so everyone thinks it's that, that's sort of my point is that and there's the F-35I and you know that I mean military aid to Israel is as old as Israel's existed I mean this is uh this is something that's been around for a very long time Israel Israel and the US are and and the UK for that matter are very uh, closely wound. Um, Israel doesn't always play fairly uh, in terms of it doesn't always respect that arrangement. So you see the uh, I think it was the I think it was the F-22. The reason why the F-22 uh, stealth fighter jet is not actually sold to any other Western nations. And as a result, it can't be sold to any other Western nations is because uh, Israel was accused, or at least there was some evidence that they had leaked some of the blueprints of another uh, another American fighter jet project, which they're working on with the Americans to the Chinese. And as a result, this was why uh, it was, no, 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 we can't export the F-22 because if we did give it 
to the likes of Israel, then uh, they would they would reverse engineer it and they would they would sell it on. And that was, or at least that was the some of the narrative that surrounded that. And that was in the very early two thousands. In fact, I think it was nineteen ninety nine. But anyway, I mean the the collaboration, the coalition between Israel and uh, Western developed nations who manufacture an awful lot of arms, as we've already said. I mean, this is a, this is as old as this is as old as a hill, Sam. I mean, this is uh, this is simply the normal this is the normal geopolitical arrangement we have, where Israel. Uh, whether you like it or not, is the closest that the Middle East has to a Western liberal democracy. That does not mean that it is a Western <laughs> liberal democracy. It is very authoritarian indeed when it comes to uh, the, the manner in which it's structured. But just in terms of its, uh, its setup relative to the likes of Saudi Arabia, for example, or Iran, uh, Israel is closer to us than uh, to than, than theirs, as it or well, is closer to us than it is to them. And this is a, a relationship that has existed for a very long time. Of course, it benefits America very much indeed, and indeed it benefits the UK very much to have an ally that is right in the middle of the Middle East. Indeed, it occupies the Holy Land itself in Jerusalem. Um, and uh, you know, as a result, uh, it's uh, in the interest of the Western powers to empower uh, this this one ally who's right in the heat of it all. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's the that's just the that's just the way it is. Uh, you can argue for you know some some of that to change, but um, oh well. I mean, what what do you make of all that? It seems like you are not uh, too appreciative of this arrangement. I look, my, my view on it is, is pretty simple, is that it seems that when there's an economic need for uh, a Western country like America or the UK to spur itself into action again, it almost perfectly coincides with some sort of conflict with a, 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 an ally uh, of which they can justify increasing uh, you know their 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 direction of funds and resources to what is effectively the war machine in those countries, and it seems like when you coincide that with uh, a change of power as well, in order to sort of put their stamp on uh, on the initial uh, I, I guess the step into that power is that it's almost like it's it's almost a dead certainty is that really this sort of thing should be foreseen. By the market that you know if there's in a period like we've seen in the last year war machine is going to kick into action uh and that we're going to see conflict and increasing conflict particularly in the middle east which has, for the last century has been just the staple of economic uh interests from america and the industry that surrounds that and it just seems like even though we are a hundred years plus or well, about a hundred years down the track um, from a lot of the, you know, the, the intrusion into the Middle East around uh, accessing oil and obviously then the wars that surrounded those periods, nothing's changed. <laughs> I guess that's probably my core point is that nothing's really changed in the space of 100 years is that we can progress technologically, we can have wonderful innovations and developments and you know, we can access wonderfully and weird tasting beers from all around the world. But at the end of the day, the people in power uh, of westernized uh, governments and economies really always revert back to the status quo is that that when they, when they get desperate, they go back to what they know. And that is creating turmoil to justify the industry that has built the economies that they're founded on. I'm, I would be very skeptical of the idea that this is, um, the conflicts that one finds in the Middle East are a 
are being deliberately stoked uh, or at least have been deliberately stoked every time over the last century. Uh, I, I would really challenge you to find any period in uh, over the last really millennia when you could really point to uh, stability in the Middle East, uh, which was, uh, and peace in the Middle East, where everyone really just got along and, uh, and rubbed shoulders and everything was fine. Uh, you would probably the closest. No, be I, during, I, I agree. I, well. Sorry, I, I do agree with you on that. It's 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 always there's always been issues there, but I think that they poke the dragon intentionally. I, I think I think this dragon pokes itself, man. I, the <laughs> the the groups that you have, the borders that you have, you can always dispute things like borders. Uh, the British Empire uh, is notorious for maybe not drawing borders in the right areas when it was uh, dividing up land, things like that. Uh, and you know that that opens its own can of worms. But when you're talking about uh, you know groups uh, of people, identities of people uh, in the Middle East who you know these guys want to arm themselves, they want to uh, they want to you know, in quite uh, in, a, in an imperialist fashion to expand their borders, to expand their influence, uh, and they're going to get the arms one way or another. And the U.S. happens to arm one of them, some of those, and the Chinese and the Turks and the Russians uh, arm the other side. Uh, so, uh, well, and the Turks kind of do it in the middle. They they fund some sides and other sides, and and Israel itself produces its own arms, many of which it actually sells to the U.K. and indeed to the U.S. It's not entirely a case of uh, of foreign powers funneling weapons into the area. Uh, if you so actually for my bullish segment this week, you've uh, you've you've actually uh, you brought one on. I didn't actually have one, but Excellent. now you brought one on. Uh, would be uh, the Israeli company called Raphael. Uh, Raphael, sadly, is not publicly traded, and it's very hard to buy Israeli equities anyway. I think the closest you can get to is buying a tracker fund. But Raphael, uh, if it were publicly traded, well, I would definitely want to buy some stock in it because they do create some incredibly innovative uh, ideas. And this is where, uh, I mean, the way you present it, Sam, is almost like, well, the arms arrive in Israel, sort of newly made. Israel customizes and makes uh, its own its own gadgets and sells a lot of those actually out to Western powers as well because they're very innovative. And you find uh, cybersecurity as well, they're very, they're very yeah. big on, similar to South Korean companies where you've got this sort of northerly neighbor which instills this uh, need to develop military uh, equipment. Uh, so Raphael, I think, would be probably what I'm bullish on. The events that are transpiring there, the chaos that's transpiring there, is only is only going to increase their uh, increase their uh, their business. Sadly, uh, the mm. way the way that things are over there. Um, but you know, Sam, I mean, you could maybe point to like you know the Ottoman Empire as probably the last period when you had some. Uh, there were there were certain structures uh, that were in place and ultimately which decayed. I mean, the Ottoman Empire didn't didn't survive the First World War because it wasn't ready for it, couldn't survive it. But the Ottoman Empire itself was was guilty of genocide. I mean, this was not, yeah, it was a time of stability, but they they genocided Arabs. I mean, they did awful things uh, in the Middle East. It's you know, pointing to the Middle East and saying, oh, well, things are kicking off there. It's not it's not the military industrial complex, I don't believe, that is doing that. These are, there are some very, very, very deeply uh, rooted divides there. And they are divides which nobody has been able to truly bridge, quell, and ease, and the person that does, uh, you know, will, you know, it will be, uh, you know, a true hero, whoever it is that that manages to do it. And it's very hard for me to imagine. Uh, yeah, um, I, I don't, I don't see it ever changing, and and maybe that's perhaps, maybe no one, maybe no one really wants it to change. But you know, the interesting thing, and that actually brings up a bullish uh, thing for me as well. And here you were thinking that me going down this path of conflict in Israel and Palestine was a bad idea, but I'm actually really bullish on Israel still is, as mate. well. <laughs> bullish what are you on bullish on? 
I'm bullish on Israel um, because actually, so what? So Israel is an, it really it is it's a fascinating place. I've never been. I would love to go, um, and, but Israel has got a really uh, strong, renowned research uh, reputation in cannabis, and uh, so I've I've been Indeed. sort of on the doing a bit more research and, and that into into cannabis over the last few weeks. As I said to you before, I was the host, the moderation of a, of a panel on cannabis investment uh, just recently as well. And, uh, and I've been studying this space for a number of years. Most of the quality, high quality, high level uh, research into medicinal use cannabis comes out of Israel. Yep. Uh, a lot of the technology around how to um, extract the right kinds of cannabinoids, and uh, access different terpenes, all these sorts of different ways that you can find, uh, detect, uh, interpret how um, cannabis can can be used in medical therapy comes out of Israel. Um, and and it, it, it for me it's it's kind of weird because you there are so many you know positives about what they do and, and research in that area and, and the sort of innovation that happens whether it be something like cannabis or other industry. And then at the same time, all you seem to see in the public domain is how they're always in conflict. And there's a conflict of ideas about them being this very innovative, forward-looking um, developmental sort of nation, but that are always in conflict. And it's just this weird dichotomy, I think, that there's so much uh, positives about them and then there seems to be so much negatives about them and then they're inextricably tied to things like America and these Western powers. And it's, it's just, just this really interesting dynamic that I can't ever really get my head around, to be honest, but yeah. it seems they always seem to be quite at the center of everything. There's a, um, yeah, actually used to knew, uh, used to know a, um, a professor who uh, was an Israeli lady who was the, uh, who was heading up a cannabinoid uh, research at Aberdeen university. She was visiting there and right. uh, yeah, the uh, the cannabis story is kind of, is somewhat, uh, you know, is certainly certainly further down the uh, the newsreel when you're looking at Israel. Yeah. Uh, that that's for sure. But yeah, I mean, the, there's an awful lot of medical research that goes on there. Um, uh, what they do, what the Israelis do well, uh, they really they really do lead the world in uh, some yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. Some of that, uh, you know, when it comes to things like arms development, uh, you know, is obviously not something that people want to think about. Same with uh, hacking groups and things like that, cybersecurity, or, you know, it's not really cybersecurity, cyber offense, really, some of it, uh, <laughs> yeah. some of these Israeli firms. But, you know, uh, it is, it's quite something how, um, how innovative Israel can be. Uh, but, you yeah, know, it's a, um, yeah, it's quite a, it, the, that, just that. The issue with the Iron Dome system—it's been been in Israel for a long time, about well over a decade. And interestingly, it actually intercepted its first armed drone this time oh, around wow. from the recent engagement. So it wasn't just missiles; it was intercepting, but a, is it, a drone. Do you, do you know? Is it similar to the um, missile defenses that South Korea put up? Uh, I would imagine so. However, and but I'm not I'm not 100 sure. But I would imagine Iron Dome is uh, more focused at uh, the smaller miss missiles, so like Katusha right. rockets and things like that. Whereas I think South Korea would probably erring on the side of, uh, probably erring more on the side of, um, of the, uh, 
you know the larger ones the um, ones. interestingly i think singapore because of the because of yeah. where singapore is yeah. situated uh i remember uh hearing that they actually uh they recruit well they didn't recruit but they they um paid a a, a very large number of israeli uh military men to come over and train and structure their armed forces because right. of Israel being similarly positioned, being a small country, uh, you know, plenty of adversaries in the area, and uh, Singapore being, you know, just the same, wanting to fit to uh, create a similar structure. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, it's all about missiles and stuff. But yeah, Iron Dome has been updated and whatever, and they can they can now intercept drones that we're going through, which I find uh, which is pretty interesting. I do wonder mm. where they get all the rockets to arm the Iron Dome system because they're. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's a lot of hundreds of these things i mean yeah. what, imagine if you ran out right i mean this must be absolutely nation critical business when it comes to reloading <laughs> that thing um but yeah I'm must sure, be some sure production they, line yeah i'm sure they've got they, they've got plenty in in a cache somewhere i was watching the, the the first avengers movie the the other day i'm, I'm going through the uh, chronological order of all Marvel movies in the order that they should be watched because of the timeline of the actual movies, not the oh, actual no. way that they've been made. But the so, like Captain America was set in 1945. So I start there and move my way all through. Right. So I got to the Avengers and I was, they've got that guy with the bow and arrow and he's like shooting all Hawkeye, these. Yeah. He's uh, Hawkeye, that's right, shooting all the aliens with these bow and arrows. And I was like, eh, at some point, he's going to run out of arrows. Um, and and then because he's just a human, he's he's he's, he's dead. <laughs> and it seems to, it seems to be like a very similar kind of situation with uh, Iron Domes. Like, it's, it's this is a great system until you run out of arrows, and then you're dead. Well, I think if they if they once they run out of, run out of arrows, I think they would just revert to uh, Israeli Air Force, then just going even more <laughs> aggressively, and probably rolling out the all of the IDF guys who they've got on reserve. I mean, yeah, I mean it's crazy to think. Um, well, it's not crazy, but you know, it's a, a nation which has national service, where you know, unless yeah, you've got right. a good reason, uh, you're you got to serve in the army. Uh, mm -hmm. It's something that we don't really think of in, in Western developed nations quite so much, but you know. Uh, in Israel, that, that's just the case. So everybody is militarily uh, sort of indoctrinated in that way. Yeah, I think um, it's around the age of 21 or something, isn't it? They have to go into service. I think it's 18, actually. Uh, in fact, I think I think I think you can if you I think if you're 16, I think it's possible you, if you want to if you want to sign up. I think is it now is that the same in in South Korea? Because I read something the other day. So I'm a big golf fan, and uh, one of the guys uh, that recently won a tournament, I think it was Sunjay Im. Uh, the he was he's getting to the age where he has to be conscripted into the military. However, if he wins, if I, I think it is, if you win a gold medal at an Olympics, you are exempt from having oh. to actually. Uh, join so, the military and so he may win a gold medal um or, or i think it might be gold silver or bronze i think you just got to win a medal podium, so they were interviewing another player and they said did you know that if sunjay doesn't win a medal um he has to be conscripted to the military and he was just like i tell you what if we're in a playoff for third and i'm in front and you know i'm 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 open to bribes to <laughs> to, to let sunjay win a medal and escape uh conscription but i i think it's fascinating to think that the countries still have that as part of their, their well i mean it's necessary ultimately if, if you if you want if you do want the nation to survive i mean this is 
uh, when there's conflict all around you, when you've got enemies, uh, literally, you're sharing a border with multiple enemies. Well, yeah, you know, you've, uh, I mean, you're going to need yeah. people, you're going to need bodies. When you live on an island, it's 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 kind of a, a, quite a far removed idea to be to share a, a hard border with a very fierce enemy. Hmm. Yeah. What are you bearish on this week, Sam? Uh, hard borders shared with enemies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure those are going to going to be going away anytime soon. <laughs> Um, I, uh, I, I, to be honest with you, I haven't, I haven't really come up with the, with the, with the bearish thing. It's, it's funny when markets are, are difficult, um, like the crypto market is difficult. I don't, I don't tend to get bearish on things. I tend to get more optimistic about, uh, things to come. So I've, I've found it hard to be bearish this week on anything. Um, more so just looking for opportunity in what many perceive to be a bearish situation. So maybe I'm bearish on pessimism. I'm bearish on pessimism. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's fair enough. I think I think that that's works. deep, man. That's meta. Mm. Bearish on pessimism. So can I, bearish on so can I be bullish on optimism? I mean, I guess it's really the same thing. I mean, you really just want to be I think it's the same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. You just want to you want to be bullish on optimism, <laughs> but you've already you've used up your bullish segment, have you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, so I've got, I've got, I can't be bullish on optimism, so I have to be bearish on pessimism. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. What am I bearish on this week? I wonder. I mean, in in terms of, uh, yeah, there are a lot of lot of things we could we could we could go for. I think there's uh, after that inflation print last week. It is, uh, you know, I have, there's be, there is quite a debate going on at our at our uh, my newsletter, Capital and Conflict, where we're uh, somebody made a very good case, a very long, uh, made a, a full argument against why inflation can't be coming back or isn't going to be coming back or likely won't come back. And I was trying to uh, rebuff this in uh, in today's letter. Uh, and yeah, his, his take on uh, inflation, it was a multi, multi-faceted approach, but he was mostly saying that uh, it's only when the economy is at full capacity and where we've got that full employment going, that's only when we're going to get sustained inflation coming along. Um, and I, I was kind of, uh, I mean, I object to that idea simply because I don't think your economy needs to be at full, uh, at full capacity for you, uh, you know, for the currency to be debased. So I don't think the Venezuelan economy, for example, is at full capacity. And yet the currency is being debased, uh, like nobody's business. So uh, when you look at the economy being at full capacity, I mean, are all those oil rigs being used uh, efficiently, or I mean, are they even all of them even being used? No, well, no. I mean, they're they're all exports. Wouldn't full capacity wouldn't... is a fallacy, though, isn't it? I mean, nothing's ever at full capacity. Mm. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, how could you ever? How do you measure full full capacity? Yeah, right? yeah. It's like, pro- it's, like it's like when they try and measure productivity. I mean, it's it's a bit of a wank, really. No one's ever fully productive. <laughs> this is not possible i guess that they, they, you they try and reduce it to having a job arriving at that job each day <laughs> i'll tell you what if that's the measure for productivity then just <laughs> rocking up to a job is is you being productive then we've got some big fucking issues <laughs> yeah i think that's fair enough it is it, at least it's more productive i mean at least you're commuting or something or <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. rather than not doing anything <laughs> I mean, is that that line from uh, Soviet Union where, um, uh, you know, late Soviet Union, where it's uh, we pretend to work 
and they pretend <laughs> to pay us, right? I mean, I, the productivity figures in the Soviet Union were so good that, you know, he had all these Western economists saying the Soviet Union is going to, out, you know, outpace the US very, you know, in the next couple of decades. Like, oh, you know, that, things that in today's good. day and age, that's one of the things where you're like, um, you're at that tweet remind um, account or whatever it is to remind you in five years time oh, yeah, how right. that tweet went. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, how'd that one go? I guess, yeah. I guess then I'm bearish on productivity this week. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, is that the same? Is that the same as being bullish on uh, efficiency? I mean, <laughs> no, I think it's but being bullish on inefficiency. <laughs> be bullish on inefficiency. <laughs> All right. Any closing remarks for this week's show, Sam? Uh, I'm going to review Pineapple Express IPA, which I haven't mentioned at all, but is my second beer. Um, so Seth as, Rogen, huh? Yeah. James Franco. Is it James Franco? Yeah, James Franco. That, that is a movie that is always worth revisiting. When you're flicking through all the streaming services, Disney, Apple, Hulu, Rakuten, Netflix whatever uh and you're like i don't know what i feel like watching go watch pineapple express because it never fails to to make you laugh i guarantee it i swear to god it's just a great movie um but pineapple express ipa 6.2 percent from tiny rebel i know hang on wait hang on hang on uh sorry polly's brew co but it's i think it's a collaboration mate yeah i think i think i think that's right it is Tiny Rebel and Polly's Bruco. Uh, Pineapple Express IPA. With our good pals in North Wales, we took the juiciest hops and blended them with fresh pineapple. So the taste on this, I'm not sure. Can't quite put my finger on it. Um, I'm going to say there's a bit of pineapple in there, uh, which is nice. 6.2%. Uh, so I am thoroughly gassed at this point. That's uh, actually, you know what? The first few sips on this were bit rough it was too sweet uh it didn't quite it wasn't it put it this way i wouldn't have a double ipa and then follow up with a pineapple express usually but i think if you started on something like this pineapple express um it's actually quite refreshing it's quite nice the the, the more i've got into it the nicer it became which i think means my palate probably had to adjust to going from one to the other uh, but quite a nice quite a nice uh you know fruity IPA, I would give this, uh, I think I'd give this uh, just a B. I think I'd give this a B. It was nice, but it, did, it didn't rock my socks. If I had it the other way around, maybe it might get a higher rating, but a B for me. Yeah, Money for Old Rope that by Bespoke Brewing Company. Um, I'm not sure, I'm really not buying why it gets these taste awards, I'm afraid. You know, just, <laughs> I'm telling you, it's because they're made up. Yeah, I'm bearish on these taste up. awards. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I'm going to give this one also an A or an A minus, actually, A minus for money for old rope. It wasn't, uh, didn't, uh, didn't satisfy as much as I feel it could have. But, uh, but yeah, Sam, that was uh, that was episode at 46 of Booze, Booms, and Busts. Has been very nice as ever. We are doing these slightly earlier in the week, but uh, you know, this has been. Uh, yeah, I think I think it still works well. We shall be back again next week with episode 47. And uh, we shall see you then. Bye-bye.